So I'm up here in Omaha, and I got to the airport very late last night. I did see a kiosk for Omaha Steaks, so I've got that. But I so far, no Charlie Munger sightings. I only came here for steaks and compound interest, and I don't think compound interest is going to achieve. But I am... Well- I am sitting in, in a, a, uh, a building. We have a road show and it's at the, let me see if I get this right. The largest privately held bank. Uh, so I am, I am near compound interest and I, where I'll have to put, I'll have to put this, this picture in the show notes where I'm sitting. I think I can see the servers with blinking lights where the compound interest might be happening, but I can't touch it yet. So. Well, two, two questions. Uh-huh. One. Like, why weren't you looking for Warren Buffett, right? I mean, why Charlie Munger? Like, do you have something against Warren Buffett? Well, well, secondly, yeah. who does does Warren Buffett own this bank as well as all of Omaha? You know, I don't. I don't think he, I. I should look this up in uh, in Wikipedia. So, so you know, this is this is my proclivity uh, to to lean towards more of the Dennis Miller side of humor, which is is I believe the more obscure your references are, the uh, the better they are. So, like, sure, everyone knows Warren Buffett. But do they know Charlie Munger? I do. I'm uh, smart and clever. Okay. Hence, it's more funny. Got right? it. And, Got and, it. and also, apparently, Charlie Munger has this like great book of like Munger wisdom, right? But it's like, it costs like $200 or something. And I don't think there's a Kindle version. I should go look this up, but it has all sorts of like little witticisms from, you know, someone who's, uh, that guy's got to be like an octogenarian or if not a nuevagenarian. I don't know what a 90 year old is. I'll have to look that up. Lots of, I've got lots of Wikipedia research that I need to get through. What's important? Well, I can never decide when it comes to those two, Munger and Warren Buffett, like, are they geniuses or is it like the greatest, uh, um, example of the halo effect we've ever seen? Oh yeah. Like what's the, I don't know. What's the magic there? Like when you read about them, you're like genius. And you're like, well, I don't know if this would really be repeatable. I'm not yeah. sure these guys can start this over and do it. Yeah, what yeah. Do you think? Where do you think? My, my my theory on them and and our uh, every now and then mentioned, uh, you know, I used to have this podcast called Back of the Envelope with with our friend uh, Ed that we used to work. Well, not you, Matt Ray, who is not here. In case you can't figure that out. Anyways, we used to work with Ed, and I used to talk with him about Warren Buffett here and there. And and my theory, slim as my knowledge is, is that. Probably like most things, the first 20 years of, of that operations tactics were key. Cause, uh, I think at the moment, as far as I can tell, the Warren Buffett and I guess Charlie Munger, the, uh, Berkshire Hathaway investment thesis is buy undervalued companies for a long-term investment that look like they'll pay off, uh, you know, a couple of percentage points compounded every year. Um, which sounds nice. Like, you know, they own a piece of Coca-Cola and a piece of your company and they own, I think, I forget which railroad, but they own a piece of, if not all of some railroad, they have a slew of insurance companies. If I remember the history that they bought at the beginning. Um, but so the, 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 as, as I, I think every now and then, if you listen to the John Syracuse, like school of thought, as he's, as he's very, in his unique way, sarcastically likes pointing out the whole problem with how my, how I plan my life is that I didn't start out independently wealthy. <laughs> right so so like the Berkshire Hathaway model of investment works out really well if you already have a lot of money now so that's why I think probably the first 20 years are key to figuring out what happened because I don't I don't think he started off rich he just made him and his his crew like Warren and Charlie I think made some key investments 
in in some and I, again I think they were kind of insurance companies they made some key investments that allowed them to build up a pile of cash and or build up a pile of equity that allowed them to get some loans to go buy other stuff and so forth and so on right so step one become independently wealthy and then everything else, everything else after that totally possible. Yes, I, I think you you hit on it right there. I, I do. This is where I kind of go back to that original question. Like much like you know, more recently, the Big Short. Right, there was a group of people that saw the Big Short. They made enormous profits off that money, and they will continue to invest it and do really well. And as long as they're not totally crazy with it, they'll probably continue to, you know, return you know good returns for the foreseeable future, at least market average. And I think that's kind of comes back to this Warren Buffett thing. He clearly hit on some good stuff early, and then from here, from there, he's done a lot of good around value investing. But I do like I, I think about this a lot because when I see Warren Buffett interviewed, he looks like just the nicest guy, right? He just yeah. I mean, looks like a grandfather. Like you would just sit down with this guy at his Dairy Queen and have a milkshake. It would be a really interesting conversation. But then I saw him interviewed around Wells Fargo because that's a big investment of his, and Wells Fargo has had a lot of controversy to that and. You know, he, he sort of was very, very executive-like in his answers. Like, well, you know, there's a few bad apples. You know, companies make mistakes. you got to find these mistakes and get rid of the culture. And I was like, hmm, that is maybe the side of the, a very shrewd and, uh, you know, if you will, an investor that sees what they want to see, right? Because there's yeah. definitely some stuff going on. So, but enough about Warren Buffett today, Kote. We're going, we're going a different direction for everyone is um, – We'll have some show notes. News happened in the tech world, but Matt Ray's not here. So frankly, I don't know anything about it. So what we're going to do today, Kotek, <laughs> is we're going to we're going to actually go back in time. We're going to talk about how someone goes from uh, a philosophy degree to tech evangelism, that person being you yourself. So let's start with a very simple question. Mm. Can, can, I, can I just one? first say that, that uh-huh. I have been waiting my entire f- career for someone to finally interview me. I'm like, how about, how about I interview everyone? When, when am I going to get my fucking interview? No one ever interviews <laughs> me. Time. That's right. It's your time. I, I am. We're I, not gonna, I'm going to warn people. We're not going to go sequentially. I, I'm, 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 jump I'm around human. the timeline a little bit. So yeah. it's going to be like, kind of like lost or like, uh, oh, yeah. world, but better. It's going to have a better ending. Now, so. now this, 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 uh, just, uh, this is the only parenthetical I have before uh, I prevent you from starting. So that on the Island and lost, there's that big broken off foot on the statue. What was that? Do you remember? This is like the well, yeah I, I do remember yes it was like one of the many plot points that were never explained at okay, all okay so, yeah okay there's the there's a big foot there I think there was a big statue but like nobody knew why yeah now why. I I seem to remember you know they, when they went back in time just, oh sorry spoiler alert uh, if you haven't caught up on Lost uh, <laughs> if you haven't caught up don't don't watch it actually save right. yourself five years and like a hundred plus episodes I, I think I think. I think there is some episode where they go back in time and you see the full statue. And I, and I, I mean, the only thing is yes, like, oh, there used to be a civilization here that built big things. But like, what? That's unsatisfying. So anyways, okay, okay. All right. All right. Well, let's get back to it. So when we left you, all right, so you went to school here in tech at uh, University of Texas Austin. You majored in philosophy. We know, I know, you know, you already had some tech skills at the time. And, you know, so you probably felt like, you know, I've got some tech skills. But then if everything you can major in, why philosophy? Mm. Well, this is a good question. Uh, and so I actually started off, 
so I went to high school in the nineties and I, and I, and I, uh, I fancied that I would have a, uh, that I would be a writer, which, which, you know, to be, uh, if you, if you think about it, that actually sort of happened. I guess you would call me a copywriter, but, uh, I really wanted to be a writer because I liked Hemingway and Hunter Thompson and all these people. So I actually, and, uh, I actually, I actually applied to this little real liberal artsy school called, uh, St. John's, which I think has a campus somewhere as in jokingly we found out, I think of as New England. Uh, and, and, uh, and then also in like Tucson or something. And basically the thing in St. John's was they would, they would walk you through a classic education and you would learn ancient Greek and Latin. And, and it seemed like the perfect fit for someone who was, uh, wanted to be a writer. But, uh, it turns out that if you, you write like a ranty letter about how you're an angsty teenager, they're not really interested in that. So, so thankfully, uh, this is bad. I don't know if they still have this, but this is, this is around the time in, uh, in Texas where if you were in the, the top 10% of your graduating class, uh, GPA wise, you would automatically get accepted to, to UT or another state school. Maybe it was only UT. So anyways, I got accepted to UT, which is also nice because I was in Austin and my girlfriend at the time went there. So perfect. Now, also conveniently, my mother just happened to move away from Austin the same year that I went to college. So it was, it was kind of like a reverse leaving home situation. It was, but my grandmother was still here so I could go wash my clothes uh, on the weekend, which is nice. So wanting to be a writer, I enrolled to be an English major, uh, at UT. And, and, and at the time I had already been doing software development for a couple of years at this little company called Funds Express, which I think now is owned by First Data, if I remember. Uh, so I was already, I already had like a salary and I was already a programmer. So it was nice. I didn't really plan it out this way, but I, I didn't really have to worry about getting a degree, uh, that would pay me something. Um, and then, so I, I also was interested in philosophy. So I took that, uh, kind of in parallel. And then one year I had a, you know, I don't know how much of this is me making up the story, but one year I had a Victorian literature class and, there were a lot of interesting things. It was Professor Newton we had. And, and I, I remember this almost every day. He, the most valuable lesson he taught, um, which I always thought was odd because he, if I, he was, he was, uh, he would wear a, 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 a yarmulke and he was, if that's how you say it, and he was Jewish. And I always thought Jewish people like respected texts as far as they wouldn't like touch them, uh, or mar them. But his, his theory was the text is a tool for you to interact with. And by text, I mean book. And so he would always encourage people just to like write all over their books and write marginalia and just really like chew through the books. And the way I interact with text and content is like that, right? Like I see it as a, uh, as, as a, as a like clay to fuck around with, uh, so to speak. But that's the one thing that I really liked that I learned from this class, other than he was kind of a cool person. But I hated Victorian literature, especially the poetry. Oh, my God. The po- I, I remember, and maybe this is the moment, there was some piece of poetry. I don't know who the fuck it was by. One of the famous Victorian poets, maybe Longfellow or something. And it was like pages and pages about a well. And, and I just remember reading that and thinking like, what the hell is this? And, and I kind of realized that an English degree doesn't actually teach you how to write. It teaches you how writing is done and how to criticize writing, which is totally fine, right? So I had built up those skills, like how to look, this is kind of why I always talk about how to read a press release. Like, so I had built up these skills of how to be, how to do criticism. Uh, but then after that class, I was just like, fuck this shit. I don't want to take one more class. Uh, and then, and then I switched over to philosophy, which I had actually grown to really like because philosophy was more like, there's no discussion of wells except as a metaphor to like explore ideas and stuff. Uh, and so like I switched over to philosophy and it was so much better. Now, 
in retrospect, the really dumb thing is I only had to take one more class to get an English major. So that was stupid. But, you know. Nice. Nice. Well, I think we should do a couple shout outs here. One, Ian McCracken of Zenos. He's the he's a St. John's graduate of the Annapolis one. He he's a huge fan of that like classical yeah. education where they don't get any grades for the first year. It sounds weird to me. I don't know. I can I was like I would never do it. And then you're also um, following in what I call the uh, uh, scholastic or graduate program of Chip Holden. I think Chip Holden is like I don't know like one class away from like three different degrees and yeah. like a, a, a paper away from like a, a master's or PhD. So yes, I, it always fascinates friend. me. Like I, I think there's like two types of personality. Like I, on the other hand, got every single degree I could possibly get. I got two bachelor's degrees, which really honestly not even that. It's just a waste, but I did it because I was close. And I was like, I got to get it. I got to finish. Right. Yeah. Um, so I've always been amazed by people who are just like, I just don't care. Chip being, the strongest person I know. They just, just could not care less. I mean, sometimes when I hear it, I'm like, why don't you just go back and take class so you could care less about yeah. it? So, so why, like, let me ask you that. Like, why do degrees, you know, do you just not care? Or is it just like, what, what's your philosophy? What is your philosophy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I, I, so, so by this point where I'd made that switch over, um, I don't, I don't think I had it in my head that I would be a writer. I think at that time, so I graduated in December of 2000, which is to say I, it took me four years and a semester to finish my degree. And I don't think I ever went to summer school, uh, or, you know, to, so I think by this point, like I didn't have in my head that I was going to be a writer, but I was working in the first wave of the dot-com stuff, and I would like mentally calculate what I was going to do when I had all of my my uh, my dot-com money, right? Like, okay. I remember having yeah. lots of thoughts about like, well, and you know, I'm going to get X amount of six figures, right? Just being, I'm putting this in joking air quotes, quote unquote, conservative, right? <laughs> right? And yeah. so I think what I would like to do is just like travel around for a few years, right? Like I, did, I didn't even have ambitions to be independently wealthy. It was just like, oh, I'm going to have to work at some point. So, so like, I think finding, and also being from the type of background I am and being like a white guy and everything, I was like, I wasn't really worried about financials. So to that end, like I was more interested in like, am I having a good time and enjoying the learning that I'm doing? And so it's sort of like, yeah, fuck it. I don't need that. Right. Like, don't need need another piece of paper to experience here. Yeah. And and it's, it's, it's almost uh, an over application of the sunk cost theory. Right. It's sort of like, well, never mind the sunk cost. And, 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 you know, also our friend Charles Lowell was like this. I think he was one semester away from finishing a CS degree. And, you know, he, uh, he, he smartened up as it were and went back and finished it. But it is, uh, yeah, there's certain people who, who think like that. Now, during, I believe it's during the college days. That is this where you end? You started living at the commune. Where, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I. I, I so this is that. This is another interesting part. Like you're living. You're. Do you start college like living at home or living in like a traditional dorm? I, I started. I started in a. I started in, a, in an apartment uh, on Riverside, uh, and wow. I lived there right off the bat. And then I moved. Let's see. What did I do? Then I moved to another apartment. And then my girlfriend at the time, she had moved into House of Commons, which is the clothing optional vegan co-op, which, as I like to quickly disclaim, that means that the beans were never cooked well enough. And there was the one guy who was always naked. 
right? Like, like that's, it doesn't, it's not as awesome as you might think it was or, or embarrassing. Um, and so she had moved to a co-op, uh, maybe our second year in college. I, I forget, which basically meant I lived at the co-op and, and cause you know, uh, she had her own room. So I would spend all of my time there. Uh, you know, you can fill in the details. Um, and, and then I kind of realized that like, oh, this is stupid. Why am I like paying my own rent somewhere? Now I didn't move in to her own room. Um, but I did rent my own room, uh, there, which was great. And so I ended up living, it must've been when, when after the second year, cause I think I only lived there like two and a half years, uh, in, in that situation. Um, and that's where I met Kim, my, uh, my wife uh, now, so that that all panned out well. But yeah, living in a co-op was uh, that that was that was an interesting situation. Uh, it was it was fun, and I, I also lived there with you know I got to know a lot of people who were um, not nerds. All my not nerd friends, <laughs> as it were. So what's the takeaway? Because you seem, I think you do a good job. Or at least this part of your life spans between kind of like you've got one world in this like emerging dot com tech world that at the point, right, we were all going to be rich around 2000. It was all feeling yeah. like we all had the spreadsheets open when we we're going to make our first million. And then you got your other foot in kind of this philosophy, you know, live for today, um, co-op, like what, what's the takeaway? What are like, and I bet you most of the people like that are listening to this did not live in a clothing optional vegan co-op. What's the takeaway? What do those people know that the tech world needs to that, know? That we don't know? We don't know. Oh, man, I think there's three instances I think of. Let's see if I can remember all of them. Uh, three people who I think answer your question. The first one, well, and the first one's kind of an amalgamation, which we'll just call the uh, ended up working for the city or, or the parks person. And this person, this type of person, this persona had a genuine, they were like all in on the genuineness of all this, right? They were like, I, I'm at least a vegetarian because I think it's cool to do animals. I always wear hiking boots because I go hiking all the time. They are just like your total modern day hippie, right? They didn't really have the peace, love and whatever. They're very pragmatic hippies. And a lot of these people got involved in like politics. This is the people who end up working for the city government or they, they work for the park service and stuff like that. So they still, I think people of, 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 I'll say our ilk. Uh, would call them earthy, right? Um, okay. But they're just like they just like they like they like earthy stuff. Um, so there's that. Now the second category were the let's call them the hippie hustlers, and there was there was a cadre of people who were they were like musicians and day traders, <laughs> right? And traders. yeah, they were li- they were literally like day- there were a couple of day traders in the house, but they weren't like they weren't like red Carrera driving day traders. They both, and this is why I call them hustlers because they wanted to like live that lifestyle, that kind of lefty lifestyle, but they were also good at finding like money opportunities and, and sort of chinks in the system that they could go in and extract uh, resources from. Now, there's, there's one of these people who ended up uh, going to get a, a master's in accounting and worked at an accounting firm for a while. And then he, and then this person was like, fuck that shit. And uh, now he, he works in the pedicab business. And there's another one of these people. I, I wouldn't exactly categorize him as one of the hippie hustlers, but he's actually one of the owners, uh, not one of the, he's the owner of one of the larger 
major pedicab businesses in Austin. So there's all these, they're, they're very business minded hippie people, right? But they, they have all of the, the alliances and, and notions that you would expect from a vegan clothing optional co-op. So they were an interesting set. And then, um, and then the third set was, uh, I don't know, people, people a little more like myself who were just sort of there. Like they weren't really like, um, you know, they, they, they all of, everyone in that house was very, what you would call left leaning, right? Um, right. but, but, you know, people in this category are like people like myself, like my wife is in this category. And we had a good friend. We had another, another friend who actually went to law school and kind of like the accountant person, uh, after going to law school, he was like, I don't want any bit of that. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, they all, they, and, and then we have another friend who's actually, uh, they're, they're a pediatrician now. Um, and so, you know, they, they just like, they're pretty much normal, but they, they had that leaning. Nice. All right. So you're in the co-op. Then I, now I know it's sort of where I think we start to cross paths and you, you jump into the tech world and you're doing Funds Express. You're, you're making your way around various um, tech companies, really, I think, as a developer. So so kind of take me through that. Like you were a developer. Did you love writing code yeah what what um like what was your passion sure so so for for a long how that that stint go yeah so for a long time i was what you would call a web developer like i i knew html really well and i knew enough Perl to like do stuff uh and that's a lot of what i did at funds express and then um then what happened so then there was this little startup called coral technologies which is basically there was this era and there was another company that i think still around called united where um, the notion was that SETI at home thing sounds really cool. We should do a commercial version of that. So you've got all this sort of like a pre-cloud cloud thing. Uh, you've got all this spare capacity on desktops. We should make a little agent that will allow you to use that spare capacity, just like SETI at home does for like rendering and stuff. And so there was, there was me and Matt Kinman and Matt Ray and Jean-Pierre and Scott Diedrich, like the, the, this kind of group that like, uh, I, I was with a lot in the 2000s. And also there was, uh, Zane who, who was the CTO of that. So we worked there for a while and I think that lasted like six months. So that's, that's like the well, job. Let's pause there because that's like tight for, you know, you see this, you see one of two things happen. Like there's a core group at a small company that's successful and that usually the success usually like creates really strong bonds. Yeah, like, yeah. The, like they always call it a there. mafia. Yeah, like a little mafia, like Play, PayPal mafia being, you know, the one very famous, successful group. But then, you know, as I recall, uh, it didn't, you know, it didn't work out. Not everyone walked away millionaires, but that you guys, I think, are a very a tight group of developers. I think, you know, you still, um, some of you obviously are closer than others, but like I still, you know, when I go to happy hours, or I run into you. Like I see a lot of you guys together, and you yeah. still have that strong bond, even though it wasn't necessarily like this huge success. So. so like what was it? What was it about that that group that sort of you know transcended, if you will, the company, and it's now you know whatever ten fifteen years later, you guys are still pretty tight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think so. So I had known. Um, so I'd gone to high school with Zane. So I'd known him for a long time, all the way back to junior high. Um, and then I had I had gotten to know uh, the two mats when we were, I was at Funds Express, and Jean Pierre was there for a little bit. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, I think the tight knitness comes from, from, from several things. One of them is because we were like in our twenties and we didn't have like, uh, 
As, as Zane once characterized it when he tried to recruit me for another startup in the late 2000s when I had a mortgage and stuff, we didn't have any expensive hobbies, <laughs> right? So we had, we had no children, no mortgages, like complete flexibility. And we were just, we were just, uh, as someone who's almost 40 would say, we were just kids. So we would hang out with each other and we were friends with each other and we would, we had, we all like knew the Simpsons front and back. So we all, we had, we had that shared culture that uh, can be really great or really excluding, depending on how you think about these things. But we just, as they say, clicked really well. So, you know, it's, it's just like total, like, uh, like frat house is the wrong word, but this is a very like nerd thing of just like all, all, all these, all these, uh, these guys in their twenties, they just get along well because they're kind of very much the same and working together and striving and solving problems together just makes bonds like that stronger. And then also, um, and you know, you don't really realize this at the time, but like pretty much, let me see if this is the case. Over the course of three or four jobs each, like we, we all got each other jobs at various places, right? And this is like, like not all of us work together still, but many of us like referred each other to jobs here and there throughout our careers, right? So we have, we have this like beneficial safety net. We like all the same jokes and stuff. And so it's just like we're we're extremely similar. And then you also have like the uh, the cauldron of actually doing work uh, that you go. To. All right. So then you're you're a developer, right? You're doing all this. You tight with these guys, but like you're you're also fulfilling. I, I kind of think like the pool of maybe doing something else. So like what about development? Like wasn't fulfilling that drove yeah. you to really kind of like start to. Because I know some things you were playing around with, like you know, you got into blogs. This is all like you know for the kids. This is before the Twitters and the Instagrams. Like the blog was the new thing, and you did that. Um, and like I think you've always been drawn to that. So like, what what is it about like developing that didn't satisfy you? That kind of drove into these other areas. Yeah, yeah. So so to overlap a little bit. So I had always liked. Um, I think I think I think I think I I mean I it would be nice to be a writer, but I think what I really like to be seemingly unnuanced but nuanced about it is I like publishing. Like I, I, I like I like publishing things. And and I actually enjoy the process of creating it on its own, but like creating I like the process of creating something and also publishing it. So going all the way back to uh when I was in junior high, I think. So this would be the I graduated high school in ninety six, so this would be the early nineties. Um like me and my friends all had BBSs, bulletin board systems, where we we were all lucky enough to have like our own phone line. So when we weren't calling to other BBSs, we would run our own BBS and you would dial in with a modem and like download files and have chat forms. So we were all like writing and communicating online. And then eventually when the internet came, when I was in high school, we, we, uh, the series of lucky events, we were lucky enough to have like an internet connection and computers and stuff like that. And so I got involved in doing that. And this is why I got hired into Funds Express because I liked writing HTML pages because I just liked publishing. Like I would just write a document about anything just to like publish. And, and then so, when I, when I went to Funds Express, I started doing programming and, you know, I could, I could change the background wallpaper on your Windows machine. So I knew all that stuff. And, and then so I, I enjoyed programming on its own because, you know, it's a, um, I don't know. I mean, the, the thing that people like about programming is what I like about it. Like it's, it's a complicated, interesting system that you can achieve some form of creativity in. Right. And it kind of has that same publishing feel. Exactly. Exactly. You put it out and like it does something. And that's what I was going to say is, is there's this, there's this feedback loop. Like even if it's only the compiler, there's this feedback loop of like, have I done a good thing? So 
but in parallel to that, like I always had made lots of I and when we were in high school, uh, um, we also had like an underground newspaper that we did, like another instance of like wanting to publish and put things out. And that was I should find some old copies of that. That was that was good stuff. Um, but uh, but in meanwhile, the Internet comes along. And so instantly, like I start writing Web pages and having a homepage back when they're tildes and URLs and writing stuff. And then I think it's like Blogger came about. Like I remember I had like I had my own website, then I had maybe a Zoom XOOM site, then a GeoCity site, and then and then Blogger came out and I set up a blog and then that was just like you could just like do whatever you want. That was great. And then so by this point I had been through I tried to do my own little stupid startup with someone that was kind of dumb. Uh and and then I worked at this other place called Liaison and I didn't realize that I was getting hired into a professional services role and they eventually laid me off because there was no work to do it. Um and then I ended up at BMC Software through the good old boy network we were just talking about. And so I worked at BMC, this is where I met you. Um for four years, maybe I forget. But in that process, um, there was uh, a lot of free time, <laughs> and and there was also a lot of like uh, frustrating corporatey stuff going on. And then there was also just the rest of the world. And so what I would do is whenever I had a lot of free time, or whenever I made a lot of free time, I would just write blog posts about stuff like. And, and after a while, like I would study the tech industry and read news on the tech industry. And I don't know why I would do that. I just like reading it. And as representative, I remember one, one blog post that I wrote where IBM had come out with like some new version of Lotus Notes or something. And I must have written like probably at least 1500 words about it. Like I, Whoa. I should go back and find, I have no idea what I was writing about, <laughs> but I would write a lot of stuff like that. Just like my thoughts on this tech news. Um, and then, of course, I would write a lot about software development as well, because this was the heyday of Java and, and a little bit of JavaScript and Ajax and things like that. So I'd write commentary about that. And then I would also write commentary about like agile software development, because at this point at BMC, we had Israel Gat come in, who basically, uh, in his own gentle way, kind of forced down our throats doing Scrum. And so there was a lot of interesting commentary. So I would write a lot of blog posts. Um, and and it becomes self-fulfilling after a while, but it just came back to that thing of like, I like writing and publishing stuff. And um, there was a lot of inefficiency in how my time was spent at BMC. So I had a lot of time to write stuff. And also, it's easy for people like you and me and Matt to, to forget about this. But like when you don't have kids, you have a lot of time. <laughs> like, I don't even know what I would do with all that time. Right. Like, like you have so much time that you can just like write blog posts whenever you want. There is just like, you got so much time. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, that's the parallel track that I had. And then meanwhile, also when I was at BMC, like I actually, I actually did become what I would call a real programmer. Um, and I really liked programming a lot. I mean, I think, I think it's BMC that turned me more into a, a real programmer. I actually worked at a place that, at this place, Cobalt, that Jean-Pierre, or JP as we call him, hired me into. And I, maybe when I was there, I actually became more of a real programmer. I wrote some EJBs and shit like that. Um, right. But I remember... Got, got real. Got the job. Yeah, got yeah. Playing, got some scrum in, got some real... Exactly. Uh, backlogs. So you became like a real developer. And, and, and to, 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 to close off my rambling, but to answer your question, right? So like, I mean, two more things. One, like I, I remember specifically, there's all these moments I remember that I don't know if they were real or I've just written the story this way in my head. But I remember right before the BMC job, I'd been hired and I was going to start in two weeks. Um, this is when I was with Kim and I, I went to go spend a couple, a couple weeks with her in Houston because she was living in Houston at the time. And I remember taking 
the the Java specification and reading it cover to cover, like in that way that Professor Newton had had me read it. And I think at that point I was like, oh, programming, I get it. It's kind of like uh, in the Matrix where the dude knows Kung Fu all of a sudden. And like I remember finally having read that specification, like at that point, like I became really good in my own estimation at doing programming stuff. So the reason I, I stopped doing that, um, there's two main reasons. One, well, wait, hold on. yeah, Let's yeah. Let's that thought for a second. Yeah, because you know we got to pay for this podcast. Mm. So, and I think the important way that we pay for this podcast is we let people know that you are going to be out and about talking in real life. I believe. Yeah, I think you have a couple. Uh, you're going to go to Denver. Is that yeah. right? That's yeah. Uh, no, no. I there, there, we have. We've, do, do you see this audience? Brandon is trying to steal the role of MC from me because I am a terrible <laughs> MC at this show. <laughs> The, but you the, can't tell them. You see, you ruined it. When you yeah. tell them, now, now we're looking at the wall. We're going to get a bad review on iTunes. I have okay. just demonstrated why I'm bad at it. No, so, <laughs> so I, I don't really have any. So first we should say, since Matt Ray can't, there's, there's the, for our mid-roll. There's the DevOps Day Australia, which is December 1st and 2nd. And you can get 20% off going there when you use the code SDT2016. And, uh, you know, you should go to DevOps days are great. I'm sure they're wonderful in Australia. And then I don't have any, I, I actually don't have anything really. I'll be at one of the Gartner things in December, but I don't have much else going on through the rest of the year. Uh, but there is, there are the cloud native road shows you can go to. There's one in Denver on the 18th, one in New York on the 22nd of November, one in Los Angeles on the 28th. And I think you missed the one in Hartford, Connecticut. I think that was today or yesterday, but yeah, you should go out to these cloud native road shows. Like we just did a little one today. You come out and it's like a, a two thirds of a day. You get a free lunch and some coffee and you get to get hands on with using pivotal cloud foundry and you get to have a keynote from some zany person like myself as well. But if you go to the show notes at softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 79, we'll definitely put some links into that. Or if you just search for Pivotal Cloud Native Roadshow, you'll find the full list. All right. Well, sounds good. All right. So back, back to our stories. We left you. You're a developer. You've gotten good at it. You've mastered the one programming language. When I did that, after I did that, I was like, oh, I'm good. I don't really need to learn anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. No, you, was, you have, you have uh, another, kind of like a, a another interesting parallel path. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, I mean, I mean, we, we should, we should have an interview with Brandon one day because you have, you have a product manager parallel path, which is much different. And I remember you, you used to work, uh, you used to do like object oriented programming. And then you just like, uh, we're like, fuck that. Down now. <laughs> so, but let's get you. So that's, that's where I think you, uh, so you get to it and then you're writing because I think this is the part that kind of gets kind of crazy. It's like you're writing this blog and sort of like this tech news and random stuff. And I think this is where you start to like, maybe I could be an analyst. Is, yeah, is yeah. that the next step? I, I think I think so. There are, let's say, two things that happen. Other than so already, I mean, I, I really like I always really like programming. That, that I, and and I still like him a bit wistful about it, though I'm realistic that like, you know, I, I should not really care about that. Uh but and I always like publishing. So two two large things happened. One, because I was writing all these blogs, for whatever reason, I, I don't know how this happened before Twitter. But um, James Governor at Redmonk um, discovered me, as it will. And we got to be kind of online friends and we would exchange email and link to each other and talk about stuff. And, you know, in, in retrospect, he also probably recognized that, like, uh, this is someone who works at BMC and, and I get BMC as a client of Redmonk. So, you know, this is it's always good to cultivate that stuff. It's in the journalistic sense, you would call this a source. Um, but 
he uh, he enjoyed my writing, and also at this time in 2005, I started the Drunken Retired podcast with our friend Charles Lowell, and that was that podcast was always a discussion about technology and process and stuff. He was working at ThoughtWorks at the time, and James Governor liked that episode, and in fact, um, we we had a couple of infamous episodes talking about poop as as one does, and we had one episode where I think Charles compared something to soft poo versus hard poo, and and I'm using the exact words, like James Governor probably still thinks soft poo is awesome. So I basically became friends with James Governor and also Stephen O'Grady there. He's He can be a bit of a cipher, but like he, he was, he I got to be friends with those two guys. So now the other thing that was happening, so so if you think about this, this is this is an escape route that has been built, should I want to take it. What we would term an option. I've increased my career optionality, kind of without even knowing it. Uh, in parallel to this, at BMC, it was BMC Software. So one, it's like a large corporation, and we work, BMC is based in Houston, and we work in a far-flung uh, uh, campus, and all of a sudden, there's all these people from Wipro showing up. Uh, and this is maybe in 2004 and 2005, and, and nothing wrong with the Wipro people. But in the meantime, there's all this coverage that's a little easy to forget um, that basically is all like, all development's going to be offshored, right? Like offshoring is what's going to happen. So I've got this in my head, and I, I touched on this a little bit last week um, when we were talking about Trump stuff, where it's like, so my perception at the time is that my job security is not very good. And I think this is also a little bit after my dad's division at IBM had been sold off to Moltec. And so if you think I'm sarcastic, you should meet my dad. Like he, he, I, I often like to think of myself as a optimistic nihilist and he's a pessimistic nihilist. Um, so, so basically my worldview is that this job is incredibly unstable and there's little to no upside for me. And also this is long after the dot com thing. So like not a good career choice. So I, I begin sort of seriously considering like, um, what would I do otherwise? And I think. Also, I think at this time, someone that we knew had went to go work for Rocket Software, and they were trying to re recruit me, and I didn't know anything about Rocket Software. So I asked James Governor, and you know, about 10% of me was thinking, like, maybe he'll offer me a job. But most of it was like, I asked James Governor, what do you think of Rocket Software? And he was like, well, here's what I think, but you should come work for me instead. <laughs> and this is basically uh, – this is how I've gotten – many, many jobs since then. Um, it's, it's a good tactic if you want to change your career. Always ask someone else who you think might give you a job, what they think about other jobs you're going to. But So he offered me a job. And then to, to medium out the story, one night, the group of us went to Lala's, where it's always Christmas in my neighborhood, including yourself, Brandon, and my wife, Kim. And uh, we were hungry after having a lot of drinks. And we walked over to what, it, I forget what it was at the time called. There's a big condos there now, but to a place to order food. And I kind of like in my head strategized this out. And I was like, Kim's really dodgy on me going to be an analyst because her not being from the nerd world, it seems like a totally stupid career move, right? <laughs> <laughs> which, which is totally sound. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get Brandon to be my external champion and tell her this is core marketing tactic. No one believes the vendor, the person who benefits from the change. Right. I'm going to get right. an, an external authority to tell her that it's a good idea. And so in this like 10 minute walk we had to the restaurant, Brandon sealed the deal for me. And Kim was not convinced, but she was basically like, 
if you want to do it, you should do it. <laughs> that's right. I forgot about that. That is yeah. actually uh, no. That's that. Brand, Brandon's the one that. who uh, he was. He was instrumental in making all of this happen. Um, and then so I went to uh, I went to go work at Red Monk, uh, and I worked there for like five and a half, six years. So then you're there, and you know you show up day one. You're like you're an analyst. And I think, you know, Red Monk sort of pioneered a lot of, I don't know, a lot of the, uh, I don't want to say open source, but sort of the yeah. internet open analyst. And I remember, yeah, I remember talking to you at the time. I was like, so how's it going? And, and I think you were kind of describing like, there just is no management. Like you were just telling these guys, like you, you would ask them, like, I'm going to be out on Friday. They were like, okay. There was just, you know, there isn't yep. any. Uh, and, and so what was that like? What was, I mean, it, it sounds to me like you know, it's kind of like do what you want to do, but obviously there's more to it than that. Like, how did you bootstrap yourself yeah, from, yeah. from like software developer to analyst? Yeah, no, that, that's 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 a that's a good point that I don't think about very much. Is and 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 I, it's it's funny. I, I mean, I'll I'll get back to the question, but I I I've ended up over my career, especially on the team that I'm on at Pivotal. Uh, I, I, I fancy that, uh, that I do a lot of therapy for people who find themselves in that situation and they're kind of shocked at it when a managed list situation. So yeah, I mean, I mean, the first, I would say the first six months and then 12 months at Red Monk was very much so a sink or swim situation. And, and not, I wish there was a better metaphor than that because it's not like I was going to drown, but it was sort of like, um, I mean, I got two pieces of advice, uh, from, from James and Steven. Um, and the first piece of advice, like I, I went to fly out, this is before I settled on American airlines. So I stupidly flew, flew on frontier. I flew on frontier out to Denver where Steven lived at the time. And he sat down and we had a bunch of drinks. And, um, I mean, I almost hesitate to put it this way. And he didn't mean this in a bad way, but it, it, the way that I hyperbolically say things to explain them, he said a lot of stuff. And we talked about Steve Gilmore, which is interesting. If you remember Steve Gilmore at the time. And, yes. and, and then finally, Stephen O'Grady was like, Here's the first and only thing you need to understand about the analyst business. It's a racket, <laughs> right? He was like, and, and what he meant by it being a racket is that it's an asymmetric business. And the asymmetry of it is that for whatever reason, whether it's genuine or not, and with Red Monk it was because it was very genuine, you are thought to have knowledge that is completely inaccessible to people who are paying you. And, and so that's the way you, that's what you trade on, right? And so, and and part of what's implicit in that is like you're being paid to tell people what you think, which is a nicer way of what he was what he was saying, right? So you should just tell them what you think. And I remember I, I had to I had to prompt myself to do this with a few initial calls with IBM where I, I realized like, oh, I'm supposed to tell them what I think. <laughs> right? So that that was that was the advice from O'Grady. And then the the advice from, from James was basically like, uh, I remember I, one of the first conferences I, I went to, uh, was, was a, do you remember who, who did, who did web logic or web, web sphere? Web logic. Yeah. That was BEA. BEA web logic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 was, um, um, sorry. I'm, I'm actually IMing you right now to see if we need to wrap up or not. Do we need to wrap up? I don't need to wrap up. We will. We're almost there. Okay, okay. But I want to get this last part. And anyways, anyways. Uh, uh, see, this is pro I've got this problem. So I went to a BEA conference, and I remember I just kind of posted my notes verbatim on the blog. And, and this is like the only negative thing James Governor has ever told me. He said, <laughs> um, how about you like don't actually just post notes, you write something? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like, I'm going to need you to write something and not post notes. Um, and I don't think he's ever given me any negative criticism after that, uh, up to the current day. But though, and, 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 you know, the point of that being that, so you are paid to tell people what you think. And the other side of it is that you are paid to communicate and kind of get stuff across to people. And like, you know, those are the only two types of management that they ever really did with me. The, the other type of management that you were kind of alluding to is the, um, deciding not to manage is a, is a, is a form of management. And so I guess that's the third thing is they were basically like, uh, yeah, um, go get that money. Beyond that, no KPIs, <laughs> right? Like it's just like you figure out what it is you need to do in order to like be part of Red Monk and do this stuff. And we got nothing for you. Like we are not going to manage you. So it is like, it is a, I've, I've noticed this that a lot of people don't really, and I don't mean this to sound congratulatory of myself, but like most people do not like that situation. Like even I get a little upset about it every now and then, but like most people, it turns out they really like to be managed. <laughs> and, but yeah, I, I mean, uh, yeah, the Red Monk stuff was great. That was, uh, that was a fantastic job. And I think, I think it really did help me start. It was on the job training that also helped me launch simultaneously, like a whole different career that I have. And I think, you know, I, I've always thought for you, right, and I, I think people come to this in different ways, is, you know, that idea of if we kind of go back and connect all this together, right, you know, philosophy is really, most people, I think, would agree with me, is one, partially with this definition. It's a degree about thinking, right? And yeah. if you think about kind of your progression, right, you know, developing software is about thinking about a really complicated problem, but usually solving one small part of a very big problem. And then That's right. as your career grows and as your interest grows, I've seen this with a lot of people is you, while you enjoy that solving the one um, small problem and a big problem, you know, you, you find yourself gravitating towards bigger problems. And I think, you know, in the case of being an analyst, and I, I, I bet you this is the case for your current role, it's, it's about like, you know, applying critical thinking to bigger problems and then trying to organize that information help educate people. And then of course, you know, promote some kind of cause, whether it be, you know, something like a political cause, but you know, in our world, it's usually a technological cause, right? Like yeah, this, is how, exactly. this is the best way to build, um, you know, this is what best way to build applications right now. And this is why you should think about it. And I think um, when you get to that point and you're willing to, to kind of come back to your, your statement, it's like, it does like when you start, whether like, you know, the first day you're an analyst, the first day you're like a product manager, the first day you're in sales, right? I mean, it is. It's sort of like you got to figure it out. And it, and I think a lot of people uh, get scared because that it looks like this insurmountable Grand Canyon thing. Like, well, what am I going to do? I'm never going to cross. But then you start doing it. And I think a lot of people like they get across and like, oh, yeah, like no one really knows what they're doing. But I, I've, I've applied some critical thinking. I've got some good ideas. Yeah. Uh, it turns out there's a lot of people that uh, value those. So yeah, no, it and, takes and, you all the way to to where you are today at Pivotal. Yeah, it, and and, and the, to to add a footnote to that, I mean, I mean, I, I need to start getting better about discussing this concept of privilege or whatever. But I think, and 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 uh, thinking about a discussion we even had here today about there's something that so Garmin came and talked to us. They're a Pivotal Cloud Foundry customer, and they were talking about when they when they instituted pair programming. They found that because you had a pair of programmers working on something, they would take more risks because they felt safe, right? Like with, with another set of eyes and fingers helping them out. And if you think about like if you're doing software, it's all about increasing, not all about, but a large amount of it is about increasing the amount of risk you're willing to take on because 
you want to innovate. And innovation is all about trying things out to see what works or not, right? And so similarly, I think, I think what, when you're sort of like climbing up your career, there are many types of risk that you have to take on. Like going from programming to Redmonk was a big risky take, right? But I had this amount of a safety net, a sort of privilege, if you will, that allowed me to kind of take this risk and discover a new thing. And I think, I think that's like society wise, like that's a valuable thing that we need to be able to give people is, is that, that safety net so that they can start taking risks so that they can become, uh, you know, better at stuff essentially. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was going to say, you know, uh, before we move on to recommendations here, it's like, I think most people, right. And I've seen this a lot, uh, in their career, they don't need a lot, but they usually just need like one person to tell them it's a good idea and give them an opportunity. So in your case, maybe that was James governor. He's like, I think you can do this. Like, honestly, we had James on here and I've, I've seen this apply. Like maybe he had no idea if you could do it, but sometimes I've done this too. Like sometimes you're just not really sure. But if you just tell somebody like, I totally believe in you, you got this. Like that's usually totally. And you feel like, and they feel like they like, and they create loyalty, it creates loyalty to you. And they just want to like succeed. A lot of times, it just works out. Like, so even, so I've kind of gotten, sometimes that's like a shortcut. It's like, well, I'm not really sure, but like, you know what? Like, we're just going to say we're going to do it. And, you know, so, and sometimes it works. Now, sometimes it works. Really. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think, I think, uh, I, I initially him and then also Stephen O'Grady, but like, I, I owe those two like my career <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Right? Like, well, they found like, it. They were your, yeah. Like, it, it was athletes. like a Hollywood big break. And, and, and I think, I mean, as, as, as another aside, I mean, I, I have, I have grown to really admire people who can spot and, and also cultivate talent. Like my current boss, Andrew Schaefer is like that, right? Like, He's, uh, he's, he's, he's a bit of a mystery to people who, who don't, haven't known him for a while and work with him. But one of his core skills, uh, is, is spotting talent and figuring out how to apply it, which I think is, uh, is that's, that's a very rare skill for people. Very to good have. skill. That's a very good skill. All right. Well, let's bring it home. Uh, we'll just say here a couple things. One, Matt Ray has promised we'll be back next week. So if you didn't like today's episode, don't worry. We'll be back talking tech news next week and other nonsense. He is at the moment, I believe he's on a ferry going to a bank. So we hope his uh, customer visit goes well. Mm. And Coach A, other than working for uh, um, O'Grady and James Governor, what recommendation would you like to pass on to the listeners today? So, so I, have, I, I have one very normal recommendation, uh, and, and that is uh, I, on, the, on the plane rides, because I fly in American, so there's very rarely a direct flight. On the plane rides up here to Omaha from Austin, I read Gary Grovner's new book, which it's called uh, Starting and Scaling DevOps in the Enterprise. If, if you look at the Kindle, it takes you about 90 minutes to read, which I think bore out. So I, I have, I've, I've concluded, Brandon, that the perfect number of pages for a book is between 80 and 90. Anything beyond that, it better be a, a fucking Cormac McCarthy or Hemingway book. Or I'm, okay. I'm just like 80 Low 90, bar there. Low yeah, bar. Got 80 it. and 90 pages that, that you know, unless you're, the, yeah. unless you're the Bible, don't do more. Uh, <laughs> Or, or whatever your spiritual book is. So this book is, it's perfect. And, and, uh, so Gary Grovner, he also wrote Leading the Transformation, my other most favorite book in this genre of digital transformation. But this book is basically like his most up to date thing about how you, as the name would imply, scale DevOps and agile. And if you've ever read the Gary Grovner thing, he used to work at HP on firmware. Then he went to go work at Macy's. And I think, I don't know if he's still at Macy's or, or not. I, I forget. Uh, but, his big thing is that once you put continuous integration in place, you can start to solve all your problems. And there's all sorts of other stuff you do there, but he comes back time and time again to continuous integration. Kind of like, it's almost like the critical chain in thinking if you know all your gold rat stuff. So 
this book is like phenomenal. Like it's, 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 uh, he doesn't have a lot of footnotes or numbers because he is an actual user and authority on it. So it's like he is the footnote, <laughs> but, um, nice. he, he has a lot, he has very clear, crisp reading and like it's, it's a, uh, if you like this kind of stuff, it, it is generally a real page turner or swiper. Like it's, uh, it's fantastic. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but, uh, it's, it's good. All right, well, Matt Ray's not here, but just based on your recommendation description, I think he, I think we're going to safely say you will like that book too. So we'll just make that his recommendation in his absence <laughs> as well. Exactly. Uh, and then I'm going to go. Just I'm just going to go the other direction. Like I, I'm going to recommend this book. And when I recommend a book, of course, I uh, am always recommending an audio book. That's the only real way I read unless something's awesome. So, so again, everyone should go to Audible. Uh, get a book. Uh, you can put in the code software to find talking. You'll get nothing. It will be get. You will actually get uh, nothing, but it'd be great because eventually we want Audible to sponsor this podcast, like they sponsor all of them. But if you're looking for something just like just kind of junk food for the mind, um, really no academic value here. You can uh, read a book called Ready Player One. It's kind of this dystopian look at what happens when uh, artificial intelligence and, and really augmented reality and virtual reality like take over the world. And we all have these great, uh, great headset sets to escape to rather than mm. maybe TVs. And then um, what becomes of humanity and all these crazy things happen. So it's kind of just a fun, if you want to listen to something on the plane that uh, maybe doesn't tax you, just you know, hear, hear a funny story about, not funny, hear, hear an interesting story about a dystopian uh, future based on uh, virtual reality, you know, check it out. It was a fun little uh, listen. So I enjoyed that one. You know, this may sound like a cynical view on things, but it just occurred to me that if more people were standing or sitting or otherwise immobile with a VR headset on, there would be less traffic. And so, so like maybe that would be net beneficial for me. Maybe so. Just maybe let, so. less, less congested. future podcast will one day the virtual reality headset you know, replace the conference call slash flying to the meeting where we all just go sit in a meeting room and Ooh, talk. Well, I didn't even think Who of that. Yeah. yeah. We'd all like to, I think of the same as traffic and, and cut down on the airline miles. I'm well, ready. The, well, those are, those are good recommendations. So, uh, so for, uh, so before I close out, thanks for all the, uh, the feedback on the last episode. I think that's the most feedback we've ever gotten. That's good. Also, we're up to, uh, several, several thousand downloads now. And, uh, if things go as planned, we might actually line up some sponsors. This is like, if you wanted to sponsor us, this is a good chance, a good last call to email in about it, uh, or contest us, contact us on Twitter. And then, uh, also, as always, this has been softwaredefinedtalk.com, the podcast. Uh, you can find us at softwaredefinedtalk.com. And if you want to get the show notes for this episode, you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 79. There won't be a lot of show notes given the content that we have, but you can get the recommendations and, and stuff like that. And, you know, if you're not subscribed already, you should just go subscribe in your your uh, your podcast uh, catcher or application or whatever. And then it, it, if, if you deign to do so, it'd be great if you went into iTunes and left a star review or even wrote a review. I actually haven't checked to see if we have any new ones. I need to go do that. But it's always nice if you write a review in there. What I would ask is that you go in there, and the question I have this week is, should I be a Sam's member or a Costco member? How do I even evaluate that? Now, Ooh, I think it's a, for, it's a foregone conclusion on my part. I'm all in on the Costco, but I'm willing to reopen it maybe, new fiscal year coming up. You know, like, let's, let's give me some considerations, pro or con. 
Uh, that, that would be nice. And also, if you're listening to this in Overcast, as about 15 to 20% of our listeners do, I have no idea what this actually does, but you should just go open up the little cover art thing, scroll down a little bit, and click the recommend star. You know, we'll see what happens. Uh, other than that, it's always good to tell us that you like the episode. We're basically just here to hear your praise, or at least I am. Uh, and with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>